Texas Pete is taking its flavor on the road with convenient, easy to enjoy portion control packets. Whether it's a Texas Pete dip cup or sauce packet, your customers will be able to enjoy bold flavor for a better on-the-go dining experience, anywhere, anytime. Ask your broker for the number one portion control hot sauce or visit texaspetefoodservice.com for more information. Hi, and welcome to the Extra Serving Podcast by Nation's Restaurant News. I am your host, Holly Petri. This week, we are going to be talking about what I'm sure the two of you can agree with me on is the longest earning season ever. (laughs) Kava reported early this week and showed that it's possible to have double-digit traffic gains in this economic environment. The brand, which went public in June 2023, has now seen three straight quarters of same-store sales gains. CEO Brett Shulman admitted that it's partially due to the IPO halo effect, as he called it, but it's also a testament to the category's popularity, as Kava remains the only large-scale Mediterranean concept with over 300 units. On the casual dining side, we have a tale of two brands. Dine Brands, parent to Applebee's and IHOP, is leaning hard into marketing and loyalty apps while trying to, once again, grow. The chains have both had interesting new food items while embracing discounting. Cracker Barrel, which has been struggling for a few years, has just introduced its loyalty program and is looking for ways to modernize the, quote, old-fashioned brand. Shifting away from earnings, but kind of still related to earnings, we have the story that made the most waves this week in consumer news. Wendy's new CEO, Kirk Tanner, said during the company's earnings call that the chain would be experimenting with dynamic pricing with their new digital menu boards. That is when consumer media picked up on the story and called it surge pricing alerting everyone, including some politicians, that the chain could be raising prices at peak times. Tanner had to release a statement saying that wasn't what was happening. If you want more on that, read our story by Ron Ruggles on our website. It's quite good. This week's interview is the founder and director of business development at Fluffy Fluffy, Benson Lau. And now it's time to introduce my two lovely co-hosts. I'm Alicia Kelso, executive editor of Nation's Restaurant News. Hi, I'm Joanna Fantosi, senior editor with Nation's Restaurant News. I feel like we're just stuck in earnings and there's no getting out of it at this point. Yeah. I think it's because last quarter was tr- it was so Remember, we, we had 18 calls in two and a half days. But I agree with you. This is the longest earnings season. It's because there were two waves. Of my life. It was there were waves a few weeks ago, and now um, most of most of the earnings I've covered are the are like last week and this week. So and we've got some next week. Yep. Yeah. I mean noodles and pop belly or next. It, it, look it, at your it, list, Alicia. Tell us everything. <laughs> I it's it. I don't. There are some that haven't even scheduled this round yet. Anyway, it's a lot. <laughs> Also, I wanted to point out that this is the first time that this specific mix of NRN people has done the Extra Serving podcast. Yeah, and get ready for it, everyone, because it's going to happen once a month. Boy. Yeah, and it's befitting because it's, you know, tomorrow is Women's History Month, so we we should be. Yeah, you bring in that tie in, Alicia. We should be lighting. Yes, we should be. I, I, I see that, you know, dancing women emoji and burning bras over here. (laughs) Alicia, why don't you start this off because you really started this women in food service uh, page on our website so everybody go I'll link it in the show notes Um, it's called women in food service we Joanna uh, Alicia and I have been working on publishing content throughout the year about women in food service but we have some really exciting stuff that's happening 
in March. So Alicia, why don't you kind of introduce what we've been doing and then tell us what's sort of happening this month? I'll truncate this as much as I can, though I could probably spend three hours talking about it because it's that important to me and to us here on the call. It, we'd be remiss if we didn't include Sam Okus, our, our you know fearless leader as well. I went to an event in late 2022. I was stunned by the lack of women there. I had interviews with several women who were also stunned. We talked about it. Um, we had conversations about it. And, you know, as journalists, what are we able to do? Really, we have to maintain objectivity to a degree. We have to, but we also have a unique you know, position, a high level position where we talk to so many people from so many different organizations. We have an opportunity to connect make, you know, make the connections, hey, this is working and this is working over here. And maybe we can talk about those case studies, those best practices, which is basically the impetus behind the Women in Food Service Program, which officially launched in January 23. Um, and, you know, as you mentioned, we're, we're just trying to elevate those stories, not just profiles of women who are anomalous, still very anomalous in this industry, less than 15% uh, who have made it to the C-suite, in fact. Um, but also really shine a really bright spotlight on best practices, on case studies that have worked, programming, development, whatever programs that have worked at certain organizations um, so that, you know, readers from maybe emerging brands can take pages um, uh, and, and so on and so forth, sort of have a trickle-down effect. Um, you know, culminating uh, uh, just last just this week, we announced our, our formal strategic partnership with the Women's Food Service Forum. Um, we felt like this tied in really, really well um, with what we were doing. We believe in their, you know, we obviously believe in their mission and their vision. Um, we've all attended this, you know, this the, their, their conference in March and have walked away, you know, really empowered and, and very motivated. And the cool thing about WFF is it turns 35 this year. Um, so I had the privilege to talk to one of their co-founders uh, and their, their current CEO, uh, Therese Gearhart, um, last week and, and just kind of understand a little bit deeply uh, how it got started. And, and you know, I, like I said, our job as journalists is just to make the connections and tell the stories so people can learn from, you know, from those stories. And, and we're, you know, we'll be at the WFF conference this year. Uh, we'll we'll keep telling those stories, and I I want to make a very, you know, uh, distinct note here. This is not just a March thing for us. That's why we started this in January. That's why we've been doing year-round uh, intentional content, um, and we will continue to to do that. Um, we have a a really robust uh, group, you know, team here with women. Um, a lot of you know most of us are women, um, but again, we have you know our our male colleagues are you know contributing as well. Um, Sam has, has been, you know, a tremendous asset to us, giving us green lights all over the place and, and really supporting the partnership. So onward and, you know, hopefully uh, we can at least uh, add some, some value, uh, you know, with our, with our platform, uh, which is all we really want to do here to help move that needle. So. Well, it's so interesting that, you know, you talked about how this initiative started. So, Alicia, you wrote this great piece on WFF's 35th anniversary. Go check it on our website. I will link that as well. But she spoke with Edna Morris, which is one of the co-founders of WFF. And she was saying that it started because somebody asked her to find other women in the industry that they could interview. And she was like, I don't know of any. Let me find some. And that they all just got together and were like, we need to start 
banding together to say we need to increase women in the leadership roles. We need to get those rungs up filled with women to build up the pipeline. And it's so interesting because we're trying to shine a light on these stories so that people aren't just at the C-suite. So they're building, so we get a pipeline of people who can eventually go to the C-suite in 20 years. And so that's what these stories are kind of meant to say is that it can be done. Things can happen and we want to show it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think the important thing here is you know, just taking that experience from that show that I had, my estimate is less than 10% women there. One of my trusted colleagues told me off the record that, you know, that, that they, those decisions are made when, when you see pockets of men at all these shows and all these conferences, because there's, it's just a numbers thing. It's just a numbers game. But important decisions are being made in those pockets. When they're going and having informal conversations off the stage, outside of the session, when they're just having an at the bar, you know, especially at the bar, on the golf course, when they're having these conversations, really important decisions are being made. And there just aren't women in a lot of these conversations. And I think that it has a, the big, a, a weird, you know, un, not as talked about potential here is is just getting these women together it goes back to that foundation of the WFF 35 years ago. It all started because they didn't know each other and they got together and they made an important decision once they were able to physically get together. And, you know, um, Therese Gearhart, the CEO of WFF, made a really important point. What if you're a woman uh, who is a CEO? You know, it, you don't have a lot of peers, female peers in the industry you know, to, to, to rely on, to help with some of the, what's your 90 day plan? You know, and I, we do have a different perspective. It's, it, it's not a man bashing thing. Obviously we're going to gain plenty of value from men as well. Um, but you know, I, there, there are unique perspectives that come into play here. And, and I think the networking piece is, is probably the biggest personally for me, the networking piece I think is, is the biggest piece uh, of this. Um, and I think it's something that's incredibly important is it's also it's it's not necessarily just about, you know, a numbers game of making sure that there's enough women in, in leadership positions and in leading up to leadership positions. But there are also so many uh, issues that impact uh, mostly women um, and, and, and other marginalized groups. And that might be something like child care. Um, that might be something like uh, maternity leave, uh, parental leave. Um, and of course, those things also impact men, but it's uh, it's it's something that I don't feel like is is spoken about enough. And um, in, in in talking about Women's History Month, um, I find that the that the most pitches that I get about interesting women in this industry as a journalist is leading up to March. And why is that? Women should not be treated as kind of this this anomaly of oh will or gimmick almost of will uh will call upon or pitch you an interesting story of an interesting woman in this industry because it's women's history month and that's all like she's uh she's interesting because because we have to you know know, diversity quota blah 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 but um yeah i think that there's so many interesting issues to talk about with and about other women in the industry to be fair, no minority should be like condensed to one month of the year. No, these they're meant as a time to embrace people, but they should be embraced all year round. That so mm-hmm. we we want to make sure that we're clear. It's not just women; it's people of color, it's right. Asian yeah. people, that's, AAPI, it's That's the people, beauty yeah. of the WFF, though. 
And, you know, Therese has made it a point, you know, during our interview last week to, to know we've got progress in a lot of areas. And one of them is, 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 uh, you know, black women, um, you know, the WFF has these distinctive cohorts, LGBTQ, so on and so forth. And, and the sessions at, at, you know, at conference and beyond, uh, to be inclusive as male allies, it's as, as an inclusive an organization as it, as it strives to be, um, and, you know, as encompassing as it strives to be. And I think that's why we identified WFF as such a logical partner here, um, is, Mm -hmm. is we knew that this was going to be about more than just having this conversation about women's parity. Um, it's about parity in general and about equity in general. Um, and, and they provide, I think the most robust, you know, uh, platform, uh, in the industry to do that. Well, I will close this out by saying I was born on International Women's Day, so I feel like I really like have a have a leg up on some people. So, uh, <laughs> better than le- better than Leap Day. <laughs> Leaplings, they're called. Yeah, that's, what, that's what I've I've heard that. <laughs> I got emails that said Happy Birthday to Leaplings. I was like, I've never. I heard bet that. they get some good deals today at restaurants. Ooh. I bet the marketers have have done them right. <laughs> well, we saw some cool deals, but that's ex- like the. Um, Voodoo Donuts had little um, frog donuts because it's leaping like a leap year. Very good. It was cute. It was really cute. Very good. <laughs> All right. So let's talk about <laughs> earnings. Um, the meat of the Frogging soul. into earnings. Yeah, very good. <laughs> so let's talk about the meat of, of this episode, which really is earnings season. All three of these stories or four of these stories are about earnings season. Um, and so we'll start with Kava. Uh, it was very anomalous to the industry right now. They saw traffic in December increase 40%. Uh, That is a month when people are down, uh, especially fast casuals. Uh, So that was interesting. Their sales are up. I mean, you know, they had their IPO. They're in the news. They are in front of people. They're building new restaurants because of this. Like they know that they have this momentum right now. And I talked to the CEO, Brett Shulman, and he was saying, what we have to do now is keep the momentum. We think that we have it because we're a category of one. We, we define the category. This is where people are going in terms of food choices, in terms of diet, in terms of like, this is where the direction is heading, especially Gen Z and Gen Alpha, who are more prone to like global flavors and spices and those kind of things. So um, that was an interesting earnings call for sure. They crushed it. Uh, 11.4% same source sales for the quarter, 17% for the year. So um, I think it's going to be an interesting brand to watch. Um, But I don't know what its future is. I mean, you compare it to something like Sweetgreen, which reports, we record this on Thursday, it reports tonight, um, also had this giant IPO, absolutely insane. And they've yet to turn a profit. So these are two brands that I think are pretty easy to compare. Um, But we're seeing two totally different stories. And that could be for many different reasons. Could be a timing thing. It could be a brand positioning thing. Whatever. So, I mean, what do, what do you guys think about this part of earnings season before we get into our casual dining part of earnings season? I think that it, I'm glad that you brought up Sweet Green because I think it's interesting to kind of compare them because. Um, it just goes to show you that just because you are a kind of trendier, newer, fast casual that's uh, that's bringing healthier bull options uh, to customers doesn't necessarily mean that it's a home run every time. 
Um, and so it's not just a, um, it's, it's, it's not just a, um, about looking into the category and providing healthy options. Um, and so CAVA seems to have the right stuff. (laughs) Yeah. And I, you know, I think you, you, I think we have to really be mindful here that this is very strongly driven by the IPO halo. Um, that said, the, you know, we're going to correct ourselves here. <laughs> this meteoric, uh, these meteoric numbers will come down to earth. When? I, I don't know. And and I think that's the cool thing about Kava it, it, is it has really strong fundamentals in, in place that I don't, when it comes down to earth, I don't think it's going to go under the earth. <laughs> I think it's going to be a pretty solid, ba- you know, brand. There's a lot of white space here for development. I think, what is it, uh, Holly, just above 300 locations? It's your beat, right? Just above 300, a lot of white space. You know, the demand for Mediterranean, as you mentioned, and that health halo, uh, very strong, particularly among younger consumers. They just put their pieces into place for a rewards program, which is a lot of upside there. I think analysts were um, forecasting a long-term potential uh, for this brand to generate $2.5 billion. And just for context, that's what concepts like Wingstop and Outback Steakhouse and Jersey Mike's and Cracker Barrel, that's about what they pull in. Um, and and so I think that's really, that's really where we're going to be looking is, um, you know, this potential. What really interested me, and again, I kind of want to defer a lot of this to you, Holly, since it is your beat and you have the strongest pulse here, is – their discussion in during their earnings call about the importance of dining. And I love that because I don't, I worry, I worry so much. I worry too much about lots of things, but for this industry, I worry we're going way too hard on, you know, Delco only types of concepts. Obviously the smart brands are going to have, you know, a, 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 a diverse portfolio of prototypes for their franchisees to develop in any market, but are we going overboard on delivery and carryout only? Um, digital only? Are we going overboard on that? I think the consumer still very much wants to dine out, um, and still wants that experience. It you know, it, or at least wants that choice. And so I thought that was really interesting. And I also think that's the sweet spot for Kava. Fast casual is a sweet spot in general. You've got folks trading up from QSR who are sick of QSR pricing, even though everybody's doing it. <laughs> Um, you've got folks trading down from casual, you know, there's, 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 you know, trading in and out all over the place and fast casual sits in that sweet spot. And so does Kava. So they see over 60% of their guests dine in, which is, I, I, they told me that. And I was like, that's an insane amount of dine in for a fast casual six over 60%. That's completely not an industry standard at all. And we've seen a lot of other fast casuals really go towards this digital only model. Like you were talking about. Alicia, you know, you bring up Sweetgreen as another option. They're almost like, they're full force into delivery only, pickup only, digital. And Kava, while it has all of these options, it has digital pickup, it has, like it it does have that. They know that a lot of their customer wants to dine in. And I think that maybe the reason that they are so popular in general um, is because people may be trading down from like a steakhouse and that is a dine-in experience. And when you go to Kava, it's not built the same way as a Sweetgreen, as a Dig, as a Chipotle. They just, they're built for, they're, they're built a little bit homier. And, and he was saying that 
that hospitality is really important for the brand. And part of that is because they, when they did their IPO, they took that money and invested heavily in raising employee wages and bringing them new benefits. And so that was part of the reason he says why the hospitality is so high at Kava, because the workers are happier than they would be at some other places. And they're designed, um, you know, some of the things they brought up on their call was this new, like, new store design, which is just going to be meant to be even more of a place to be and place to sit in. So, um, I mean, it's it's a really interesting brand when it comes to stuff like that. You don't see any fast casual sink over 60 percent dine in. That's like right. a. That's like a Longhorn Steakhouse number. I've yeah. been to a Longhorn Steakhouse, as we all know. Um, and there was a crap ton of pickup. But the yeah. dining room was just as full, and it almost felt like a 65 70% range, mm-hmm. and that's a steakhouse. Well, and think about that most casual dining, many, I don't want to say most, many casual dinings have fallen in that 80% to 85% dine-in. So we got 15 to 20% you know, off premises for most casual. And that's not that far behind, you know, but again, it's got that fast casual price point and, um, and, you know, speed and and so forth. So that it's really, it's a really interesting model overall. And, you know, I did not know that that's what their investment went largely into. And I, I think that's, that's got a huge upside for it. You know, they also have the CPG business. They're just a really interesting company, overall uh, and are doing a lot of really, really cool things that, you know, we could probably report about about every single day. Um, but I, I again, I think it's all going to come back to look at Wingstop. You know, it, what is the what's going on there? You know, that's also anomalous. And I know that we've already talked about that, but I think it goes back to that category of one, that very unique positioning. It, it cannot be overstated. Um, you know, we have such a saturated industry that's going to become, it's going to correct itself, you know, from the the restaurants eventually sooner than later from the restaurants that we lost in the pandemic and, you know, this very sea of sameness, um, you know, you have to differentiate yourself in one way or another. And, and here, here we, we're doing it with the menu. Okay. That's, that's, that's good. (laughs) They were saying that AB 1228 in California isn't going to affect them at all because they're already there. They have nothing to, like their pay is there. They have nothing to add to the, the like they've hit it that naturally that across the country. So, I mean, I think that's an interesting thing to take, you know, away from this is that pays to pay your employees well, yeah. It, yeah. <laughs> it pays off. <laughs> yeah. Um, and backpedaling and backpedaling a little bit um, about I, it's, it's, I, that number of um, I, I can't believe that number of dining, which is pretty crazy. Um, and it reminds me of how the buzzword of I feel like it became the buzzword in like 2021, 2022 uh, was omnichannel. Um, and it was st- still talking about it. But just because you can you are capable of having both delivery and and dine-in and cpg and all these different avenues of revenue doesn't necessarily mean that that uh that it's that it's friendly toward or or um welcoming toward that and it's just and i think that what they have kind of mastered is that ability to be interesting toward people that would want to do dine-in which is unusual for a fast casual and kind of have these other avenues of, of revenue. And I just, and I do think that that kind of makes them a differentiator to other, um, 
to other brands in the same space. Well, so that's a good segue, you know, kind of going from this dine-in to another dine-in, which is our casual dining segment today. Um, so, you know, Joanna, you report on Cracker Barrel and Alicia, you report on Dine Brands, two very different ideas. So we've seen IHOP and Applebee's do all these new menu innovations. You think about the Wonka menu from IHOP that went gangbusters. Um, their loyalty program is crazy. I'm sure, Alicia, you're going to talk more about that. Um, and then you have Applebee's who's been doing these great marketing campaigns. Um, and they, they've yet to see like real incremental growth from that. But you also have Cracker Barrel who's seen the opposite. Not, it's not like, <laughs> it's not as bad as it sounds. It, but, yeah. like they're, they're a brand that hasn't really gotten that momentum for a while. And they have a new CEO in Julie Fels Messino and who has all this Taco Bell experience, which is, you know, kind of a weird thing to go from Taco Bell to Cracker Barrel. I'm, I'm a little curious to see how that plays out in the long run, but Cracker Barrel is like, they're, they're an old country store. So they have this, this to contend with as they try to modernize for the future. So how do you guys think casual dining is playing out this quarter? And how do you think it'll play out moving forward? What's, what's the way forward? I, I think it's a, I think we have to be cautious here. Obviously, casual dining is not, uh, you know, homogenous. Um, and I don't know how to answer that question otherwise. I mean, I think that, you know, there's some that have uh, have to report still. Um, you know, Darden hasn't reported, and they've got Olive Garden that is just doing tremendous things. But, you know, for the most part, we've seen either inline or beat from casual so far. Um, you know, I, there have been a couple of misses, but they've been slight misses. And I think in the context of Q4, casual in particular really benefited from having, you know, the holiday, uh, Christmas holiday fall on a Monday. Um, you know, so there's a lot of things into play. I, Q1, I think, is going to be a more telling story to understand how these, um, you know, how these full service brands were able to navigate some crappy weather in, in January. And a lot of executives have already pointed that that was a problem. Um, and, you know, but uh, those same executives have reported that, you know, they've seen really swift recovery so far. Um, so I, I think when you want to talk about casual dining, I think it's important to talk about the continued resilience of the consumer. And I was fortunate enough yesterday after Dine Brands reported to – I love talking to CEO John Payton because he's just um, – he's very measured in how he speaks. I'll ask him a question. It feels like I dropped the call, but he's just really thinking really hard because he has such measured responses here. And, you know, Dine Brands has a, as unique a perspective on this segment as anybody because they've got IHOP, you know, family dining, and they've got Applebee's, which is, you know, the, one of the, you know, the biggest casual dining brands, if not the biggest. Um, so I, I think what it comes down to is Applebee's same store sales miss. They were down 0.5%. IHOP has been up for 11 straight quarters. And, you know, this is a good, like I said, a good cross-section of, of casual in general. There are some struggling more than others. You know, Red Robin reported last night. They're still really having a hard time finding traction, but they're going through a complete overhaul. 
And, you know, shame on us if we're not patient with that. I, I, I don't invest in them. So I, it's easy for me to say. Um, but I think a lot of their stuff is starting to really, to really work. And I think we'll see the fruits of that, uh, you know, toward the end of this year. You know, as it applies to Dine Brands, again, what John Payton said really struck me. We're not seeing a consumer cohort shift. We are impressed and a little surprised by the resilience of the guest. Um, at, by resilience, we mean the target customer continues to dine out. They're still, when they dine out, they're still looking for full-service restaurants. Our data shows they may be dining out one or two times less, but when they do, they're looking for full-service. And this is a direct response to McDonald's to uh, you know, Wendy's reporting that they've lost a lot of, they've lost some traffic with low-income consumers, and that becomes a macro conversation, right? Unemployment is low, wages are up, debt is up. It's a weird picture still. We've talked about it forever. How does this apply to casual dining? Well, I think QSR, in some instances, you take McDonald's low-income uh, as an as an example. I think that you know consumers are fed up. They're price weary, and um, these prices have been high for a really long time now. And fast food isn't supposed to be expensive, and so what are they paying more for? And that's it. I think it comes. I, I'm totally oversimplifying it. I realize that, but you know, some of these casual dining brands are doing things that are surprising people and the, the, to, for all of these executives to get up and say the consumer is so resilient, they do still want to go out because they're paying more. And when those, those prices become closer to parity at QSR and fast casual and, and casual, well, they're going to pay for service and not having to clean up their kitchen and not having to take that stuff in the car and eat it in the car. So it gets cold. You know, all of these things start coming in, into play. And I think I, again, I'm probably likely oversimplifying it, but I think casual dining is okay right now. And, and I think that surprises me as well. Uh, Alicia, I definitely agree with you on pricing here. Um, I think that it is amazing to me that the, the, uh, the pricing differentiation between um, quick service, fast casual, and casual dining really has shrunk. Uh, I noted that I went out to a fast casual burger place, and it really it was the same. I calculated that it was the same cost as a McDonald's burger. Uh, it was like the similar meal, and it was the exact same cost. And I was kind of surprised at that. Um, and then I just. I, I feel like, yeah, that casual dining, you want that experience. Um, and that's something that pricing is something that Cracker Barrel was really concerned about in their call. Um, they've been struggling for quite a bit of time. And one of the uh, one of the strategies you can take, I guess, if you're struggling is to keep taking price. And that's not something that they necessarily always want to do because Cracker Barrel is known for just having really affordable pricing um and that the average person, the average family can afford them. Um, and if if that kind of goes away, then the point and the branding of Cracker Barrel kind of goes away. Um, and so they really want to be careful there. Um, and so, but as, as to your point about casual dining, um, being pretty resilient, um, I definitely, I definitely agree. And I think that, um, as as much as I, you know, I covered Cracker Barrel and they're not, not, they're not doing so hot the past few quarters, but I think that they're, trying to uh, build some momentum. Um, I think that it really comes down to, um, at least a portion of it comes down to making sure that your brand is modernized. 
and making sure that your brand appeals to different different younger cohorts that want different younger demographics that want different things and that you aren't just necessarily stuck in the past. And I think that that's what um, that's what Dime Brands has done. That's what Cracker Barrel is trying to do uh, in implementing their new loyalty program um, and trying to get up to speed to to other casual dining brands. Something I think is really interesting about casual dining, and we'll see when Darden reports, I think they're going to be up. I think we all think they're going to be up a decent amount. Um, Alicia's making a face. She doesn't think they're going to be up. Oh, I, I, I would I wouldn't bet against Darden. <laughs> I'm not a betting woman, so I'm not. <laughs> no, they just yeah. So you know, we assume Darden's going to be up. We saw Texas Roadhouse report. Um, these steak brands that don't offer discounts. Darden doesn't really do discounts. Uh, Texas Roadhouse doesn't really do discounts. They're doing well, and so I think that there's an interesting like take on the consumer mindset when it comes to casual dining. Steaks. They don't need a discount. They want their steaks. They're going to sit there. They're going to eat it. They're going to love it. Everything else, it seems like they they need. America. They need... <laughs> I'm going to eat it. I'm going to love it. <laughs> and I'll pay for it. Full price. <laughs> they, But they are. They're paying for it full price. Like we did America's Favorite Chains. There were five Darden brands on there. It's like, insane. <laughs> it's it's insane. It just like there's this. There's this hold that steak brands have on America and yep. they don't discount and they know that they don't have to, but the other casual dining brands are fighting to catch up. And I think that that's, that's an interesting thing to note about the category is that like, I don't know if IHOPs is universally loved as a, as a steak chain, like as breakfast is universally loved as steak. I don't know. And I think that that is hard to just compete against. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we love our steak. I mean, Joanna and I got to cover America's favorite brands and really dive into it. And, you know, I, th there's not, there's really nothing else to say. Americans have always loved steaks. At Texas Roadhouse is just, I, I get to cover them and holy cow, holy cow. That wasn't even intentional. I was just uh, going to say really <laughs> with the fun. I'm here all day. Um, I want to, I want to go into something real quick about casual dining too. And it kind of pertains to Darden. You know, I, I got to see Rick Cardenas, their CEO speak at ICR recently. And, you know, he, he of course is anti-discounting on all that. And, and I think most casual brands are cautious about even using the term discounting value proposition is stronger at casual dining brands. And that goes with the experience that we talked about the service uh, that we talked about, you know, you go to Texas, you get rolls, peanuts, you know, there's a value proposition there that is not, does not exist at, on the go, uh, you know, centric Q, QSRs. And I think that's, I think that's a big draw uh, for consumers right now. Um, one thing that is standing out to me that I think we talked about the resilient consumer wanting that experience, but I think it's important too, to talk about the casual dining companies that are also, be becoming more, more efficient companies overall. You know, a lot of these companies became extremely bloated, uh, extremely bloated before the pandemic. And, you know, we are for next month is four years and, uh, you know, anniversary of those regulations going in, into effect. And if there's a, there's a couple of positives, I think this industry has derived from that. And I think one of the biggest ones is that we, we have become more efficient operators by necessity. And, you know, this was reflected again in the Dime Brands call. They have found $53 million in savings, you know, from, for example, they're adding automated beer pours, um, 
you know, to, to make sure that the beers are poured consistently. It's saving them money. You know, we saw BJ's uh, put implement a, a big um, margin improvement initiative that includes a tremendous amount of cost savings. They're renegotiating, um, you know, contracts with their food vendors, et cetera, et cetera. And, and this is this, again, we become smarter operators and these, these businesses are all operating more efficiently than they were in 2019. And I, I really hope that that remains a thing in, in perpetuity. I remember talking to uh, Brinker CEO, Kevin Hawkman, uh, for our efficiency issue last year. And he was, they were talking about such surgical things, like they changed their pickles, you know, and, and it was a cost savings thing. And I can't remember the exact number, but I remember being like, oh, that's a big number for pickle. You know, we're talking tens of millions of dollars in annualized savings. And so I think the casual dining segment in particular has a better opportunity with their unique operations to really be surgical and find these efficiencies. And I think a lot of them are striving to do just that. And I think that's going to be a benefit. You know, we'll start to see a lot more of those benefits toward the end of this year and into next year. Well, I think that Wendy's was attempting to do that with their uh, pricing, their dynamic pricing, uh, with their new digital menu boards, which a lot of companies have digital menu boards. It's nothing new. Um, a lot of them don't even use dynamic pricing, like McDonald's doesn't, but they have digital menu boards. Um, so... It's not new, but Wendy's CEO, Kirk Tanner, suggested that they might use dynamic pricing. Um, and I think we all saw the fallout from that um, because we in the industry know the term dynamic pricing, but a lot of consumer media picked it up and used the term surge pricing, which is not the same thing. Uh, so there was an interesting debate. We saw some senators uh, say that surge pricing should be illegal. You can't overcharge at peak times and... And so I don't know where this really lands. We saw we saw Noodles and Company last year talk about that they might start using dynamic pricing. Um, so it's not, you know, it's not unusual for the industry. It's basically a happy hour, um, different times of the day. We know what happy hours are. We've all been there. Um, and so I just think that this really got blown out of proportion because there is a lack of understanding terms. And Wendy's had to walk it back. And that's, you know, that's not their fault because people took it to a different place than they had actually said. So, um, I mean, I think dynamic pricing is going to be around for a while. I think it's going to be the new thing. I don't think we're getting rid of dynamic pricing by any means because of this mixed message from consumer media. Um, I think a lot of times they don't even know what's happening with dynamic pricing. It changes. They don't actually know. Um, but I don't know. What do you guys think about the dynamic pricing, but also sort of the fallout from what happened? Um, I want to, I guess, clarify what I believe Wendy's is saying here um, and, and, and uh, in in clarifying what, what they had prepared in their remarks that kind of went, everyone got very upset about in the consumer media and beyond, um, is that their baseline is going to be this, uh, this is what I'm getting from it, is that their baseline is going to be the same baseline it was, and that at certain times of the day, um, during maybe slower times of the day, prices will go down. Uh, in order to, I guess, like increase traffic during certain day parts that you want to increase traffic toward. And basically on the flip side of that, what consumer media and, and social media had kind of thought that meant is that the you would have the baseline of pricing and then it would go up. So hence the hence that bringing in that term surge pricing. And so I think that's where the um, 
the confusion was. Um, but yeah. Well, you know what assumptions make us. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. I, this is the dumbest thing in the world to me. I, and you know, that I say that I don't, I don't know this conversation about surge pricing. You know, we've, I think the question needs to become, is the consumer ready for it? This pushback over this, you know, just the language I think is obviously can be a cautionary tale, but then the, the restaurant industry has to do a better job of educating exactly what it is. And again, as you're at, to your point, Holly, it's something that we've been doing for forever. Happy hours are dynamic pricing, mm -hmm. you know, um, and, and it's not just places that sell beer. Starbucks has happy hour. Sonic has happy hour, you know, and, and so, but I think it's become a bigger topic. It, you know, I remember being at RFDC in 2022 and going to a, a, a session on dynamic pr pricing and it was standing room only. And it became a bigger topic in the past two years because it is a way for operators. It's, it, it is one of a couple solutions for operators to navigate the inflation that they've been dealing with. And, um, and I think that is, is where it became really big, uh, bigger interest in, in this industry is when food prices spiked in, in 22, 23. Um, and, how can operators use it to do, you know, subtle pricing changes throughout the day? Yes, as a traffic generator, but again, to navigate the high, higher costs. And that's not just food costs. You know, my, our colleague, Ron Ruglis, has, has done a tremendous job covering this. He's a Wendy's beat guy. And, you know, late, he, he informed me that late night labor is more expensive. So can we use dynamic pricing, you know, to, to navigate that? And I think... I think what the in the restaurant industry needs to do in terms of you know response to this is just a better job of uh, uh, communicating why the why behind this, and uh, you know like we do with happy hour, and consumers are used to this. We do it not just with Uber. We do it with hotels. We do it with air you know air flights, and it, you know we're we're actually really super duper late to this game. And I believe we're missing some tremendous benefits uh, by not fully diving into, uh, you know, the implications here, uh, the, the potential here. So that said, in 2022, when I was in that room, in that standing room only for that presentation, as we mentioned earlier, consumers have become dramatically more price, you know, price weary. And so now we even hear the word search pricing, we've got a lot of work to do to repair whatever just happened. Right. And I think that, yeah, it's, it really is. It is about messaging because I think that dynamic pricing can work with consumers. It could be, it could be kind of like a, a reward for going at a time when, uh, when, when things are a little bit slower or at off times and then you get a, a like a, a slightly discounted price or, um, versus feeling versus consumers feeling like and i think this is what, what consumers don't like when dealing with getting an uber on new year's eve let's say um you feel like you're at the mercy of that pricing and feeling like you're open up your uber app and sorry not to throw Uber under the bus you open up your ride sharing app to to <laughs> not put a brand to it um 
And suddenly you're like, whoa, this is 10 times what I thought it was going to be. And you feel like you're at the mercy of it. It's not, it's not, it, it doesn't feel fair. And so I think that dynamic pricing can be done in a way that feels like you're working with the consumer rather than against them. Well, you know, Joanna, you and I have talked a lot uh, because we talk about loyalty programs a lot. We've talked a lot about how the restaurant industry follows the hotel industry by about 10 to 15 years. And this is, <laughs> it's true. <laughs> they know it. They know it. They know, you know, it took decades for loyalty programs. But, you know, we talk about dynamic pricing when it comes to hotels. And now restaurants are introducing this. And, you know, it's not, it's not the same thing as hotels because hotels are not a daily occasion. Food is a daily occasion. So it's a different mindset that you have to use when you're thinking of hotels versus food when it comes to pricing. But like when we were at the office before uh, COVID even happened, this was like 2019, 2018, there was a Just Salad across the street from us that used dynamic pricing pre-pandemic, nothing to do with inflation. They were using dynamic pricing between two and 4 p.m. They would email you could get in, get a $5 discount. Like that was, they were doing it before then and it wasn't, no one was complaining. So, I mean, there's, you can do it in a good way and not, but I think that when people see, earnings calls are not for the public. Earnings calls are not meant to be interpreted by consumers. That's not, there's no correlation. The earnings calls are for the industry. They're for financial experts. They're for, they're for people in the industry to know what's going on. The consumer facing messages are different. That's a whole ad campaign. Like Wendy's didn't know this was going to happen because if they had known they would have had ads ready, they would have had, like, they would have had a counter message to send out to consumers because they would have been ready, but you don't ever know what people are going to pick up on. And I think that that's kind of the lesson here is that I think people are going to be a little bit more cautious about during these calls moving forward is that they don't know how things are going to be interpreted by a consumer based media rather than by an industry based media. And I think that I think it's going to make us get a little bit less information during these calls, to be perfectly honest. Maybe. I think with as it applies to dynamic pricing, the important thing here is it was happening well before uh, the pandemic, and it's going to happen well after the pandemic. And the industry, I think, could could use it. I think it's going to be, you know, a, a, a benefit, and I don't say that in a, a bad way. It's not surge pricing. We're not fleecing the customer or anything we're simply being smarter operators and um and and you know can we can we support our higher labor costs at late night can we do something to you know to to better manage our higher food costs and so forth and again this is one tool in the toolbox the toolbox is pretty big i think that restaurateurs and operators and c-suite people i think that they deserve dynamic pricing more than some other industries do. I don't, I don't know if that's the right word, but like <laughs> you think about airplane rides, I'm about to get on an airplane. Those are surge prices. Like they will <laughs> gouge you for prices at air at, for different flights, depending on the day we've, you're used to that. And I don't, I think the restaurant industry deserves the slack a little bit more than the airline industry to play our, our prices. Our margins are woefully thin in, yeah. in this industry. But yeah. I think it, it's also an important point. We talk about happier. We've been doing dynamic pricing forever. We're going to move product at the end of the day. 
we're going to lower the prices at the end of the day because we want to move product and we don't want food waste. So there's so many applicabilities to here that you, to this. That's why I said in the beginning, this is so dumb. Oh my God, that's so dumb. Well, and I feel awful that it, it, it escalated in such a, a dramatic way. And, you know, erone- all of us know, and as Ron so astutely pointed out, an erroneous way yeah. for Wendy's, you know. The other thing I, I thought was interesting is that it was just one portion of what Ron wrote about when they were talking about things that um, they want to introduce. So it was dynamic pricing alongside new day part offerings, AI-enabled menu changes, and suggestive selling. And I feel like all of those things together as a package are really interesting um, and kind of showcases, I guess, the the technology enhanced flexibility that restaurants can and should have whether it has to do with pricing or offering new interesting things at three o'clock menu (laughs) items at three o'clock or um or kind of using ai to upsell and so i think that there are as you said a lot of tools in the toolbox this was just kind of a focus on just that one portion Mm -hmm. people are going to get used to it remember when people were all terrified of their data getting out giving them to restaurant companies and now they're like please give me these specialized offers i want my exact offer for my exact order on my loyalty app so i think it's going to pass people go through phases we'll just get used to it customers will get used to it um so i think they'll all get on board that's what that's my that's my uh guess is that everybody will just get used to it in like five years and not even realize it was a thing I could tell you personally, I'd probably prefer dynamic pricing in some circumstances and 8.9% pricing blanketed. I would love dynamic pricing. I mean, I, love I just. Hour so much. <sighs> yeah. Like if but Taco I... Bell was discounted at 10 a.m. <laughs> or between 9 and 10 a.m., like I would get it like all the time because that's when I like Taco Bell. You would get time. it all the time anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but like if it was discount, like if, if, fast food is discounted at certain times of the day, like people can just open their DoorDash, Grubhub, Postmates, Uber Eats app. I got all them. Joanna. I was trying to get all of them. Um, <laughs> they can just open up their apps and they know when to order. And so they're like, I'll eat a light breakfast so I can have lunch at 3 p.m. when this is X cheaper. Like, Then they'd be paying the difference for the delivery fee. <laughs> That's Those are standard, though. Those don't surge. <laughs> All right. Well, guys, this has been lovely. I can't wait for next month when we all get to come back together. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I'm going to turn it over to my interview with the founder of Fluffy Fluffy, um, a pancake concept. So thank you guys for joining me. Thanks for having. Mm -hmm. Texas Pete is taking its flavor on the road with convenient, easy to enjoy portion control packets. Whether it's a Texas Pete dip cup or sauce packet, your customers will be able to enjoy bold flavor for a better on-the-go dining experience anywhere, anytime. Ask your broker for the number one portion control hot sauce or visit texaspetefoodservice.com for more information. All right, so let's talk about Fluffy Fluffy. The name, first of all, is very fun. So can you tell me a little about what the brand is? So uh, we're specializing in making souffle pancakes. So a uh, souffle pancake is kind of like... Um, um the the texture should be like in the middle of between you know a souffle uh and like a pancake so um a lot of people when they do a souffle a pancakes and if it is not authentic enough they will make it very soggy and very soft but at the same time if if it if they make it um like uh 
like a pancakes, then it's, it is not a souffle pancake. It, it is a pancake then. So um, I think a good souffle pancake should be in the middle of between. And that is why um, our, our brand really focusing on making uh, good products and it takes time. And right now we are actually the leading uh, souffle pancake brand in North America. And at the same time, we are also award-winning pancakes in uh, Canada. Now, so what is your background? Because you said making these pancakes is difficult and often not done right. So what makes you kind of qualified to make these pancakes properly? So I actually studied uh, uh, in Japan before uh, for pastry, uh, but at the same time, I also uh, studied uh, in uh, for food and beverage management uh, in one of the top uh, culinary school in Canada. You got a nice background there. <laughs> yeah. So tell me a little bit about what this brand's creation kind of meant to you. Um. I mean, the goal or the vision of the company is really about celebrating the diversity. So uh, from the West side, uh, we always look at what, you know, people are doing and what kind of interesting culture they are having uh, overseas. And while in Asia, we always look at what people are doing from the West. So because of the internet, because of the globalization, I think um, uh, cultures uh, have uh, more diversities right now uh, in every city or country so um, I think that like um, our brand is here to celebrating the diversity of different cultures especially um, you know between the east and the west but at the same time uh, celebrating happiness uh, through uh, our fluffy pancakes one pancake at a time. So you mentioned that a lot of brands don't do souffle pancakes properly how do you get a proper souffle pancake? So uh, like I said, like a good souffle pancake should be really in the middle of between the texture. So it shouldn't be too soft or too hard. But then um, while we are making our souffle pancakes, we really um, look carefully into our temperature, the temperature to the temperature. If it's too high, it will get burned and then and then overcooked. But if it's too soft, then the pancake itself uh, will be uh, taste like an undercooked eggs. So um, uh, handling the temperature is very important, but at the same time, the ingredients that we use, for example, uh, we use a lot of egg white to make our, our pancakes, but at the same time, uh, it has very minimal sugar. Each pancakes only has uh, nine grams of sugar uh, in our recipes. So I think um, balancing the structures and, and the texture of the products uh, really uh, differentiates uh, how a good souffle pancakes is made. Now you guys are franchising. How do you help your franchisees understand the intricacies of making a souffle pancake? So um, it, it wasn't really like a rocket science. Uh, it is still a baking process. So uh, if you follow our recipes and then having uh, using our in the ingredients that we provide, uh, most of the time you will be able to generate uh, quite a pleasant uh, uh, outcome. And so how did the U.S. and Canada react to souffle pancakes? They've sort of been up and coming, but they've stayed kind of quiet um, on the culinary front here. So how did you kind of break into the markets? 
I think right now a lot of people know about our brand and then um, in most of our brand opening, like there are hundreds of people lining up uh, to wait for pancakes and sometimes their waiting hours could last for hours. Like, uh, so I, I would say like um, in a customer's perspective or general audience perspective, not from the industry, I think people do love our products and they do love our brand of bringing positivity and, uh, you know, the, um, the cultural diversification as well to the no local neighborhood. How do you bring positivity to the neighborhood? That's hard. I mean, like, uh, who doesn't like desserts? And at the same <laughs> time, um, who doesn't like sweets, right? right? So uh, I think um, how we train the team and also uh, our mission is to spread happiness one pancake at a time. So I think it's really not just about the product, it's bringing a little bit of sweetness, but at the same time, um, I think uh, the personality of our team is also important. When we have a pleasant personality, I think um, we, are a, we are more capable of uh, spreading you know, happiness and uniqueness uh, to people. Yeah, energy attracts energies pretty much, yeah. <laughs> so you studied both food and beverage and culinary pastries. How how did you land on souffle pancakes as what you were going to do? So I'm, um, I like eating around, uh, but at the same time, like uh, I love pancakes. So uh, I think that is the reason why, um, you know, like the first time I tried it, uh, these pancakes myself, I, I, I'm very surprised about uh, uh, how delicate this uh, dessert is. What are your thoughts on an American pancake? What do you think about them? I think um, American pancakes um, is a different style. It's like uh, sometimes like uh, you like eating toast and sometimes you like eating bread, right? Like sometimes you want waffles. So it, it is not A or B thing. I think it's more like a preferences, your personal preferences, whether or not you want um, to be uh, more fulfilling or you want to be more light and airy because right now I think people do care about their sugar intake and do care about like how much they're eating. They're always trying to control, uh, you know, like uh, the calories and not eating too much. So I think... Um, like to me, like um, I think this is more uh, the future generation of pancakes because uh, people like to eat in the smaller batches. They want to taste a little bit of everything. And uh, our fluffy and airy pancakes do fit this, uh, this category. And so what does the menu look like at Fluffy Fluffy? So um, um, I would say like um, with the majority of pancakes, of course, like a souffle pancakes and there are various of uh, different toppings on top like tiramisu, uh, cream brulee, and also matcha tiramisu, matcha white chocolate, something like that. So we kind of like blending the East and the West uh, kind of culture together. Um, and also um, having uh, a varieties of drinks like a refreshers and, and fruit uh, uh, based at, um, um, refreshers as well. And then right now we also carry other dessert products uh, such as uh, crawfuls and such as uh, um, uh, bass cheesecakes. So um, we don't serve uh, traditional um, cheesecakes. We always want to, you know, have a little bit of difference uh, in our menu. Yeah. Well, that's nice. And so you guys are growing. What is it like to be in charge of a growing concept? So I think as 
it's really hot about hard work. Like uh, right now I'm working in different time zones. In the next couple hours, I'm, I'm also flying, uh, you know, from uh, California to Dallas. And then I'm actually also based in uh, Toronto. Uh, and Toronto is indeed right now our, our, where I, I stationed. So um, I always have to travel around and, you know, um, matching um, all different time zones. And apart from just US, we are also expanding to Europe and also UK. Uh, so at, at the same time, uh, uh, this morning, indeed, I, I'm, I'm, I, I, just as, as long as I wake up, I already am having a call with the UK team as well. So like I, I would say it is, is, it is very um, challenging, but it is very um, um, like um, demanding at the same time, I would say. Yeah. Was this what you envisioned when you started in 2018? Um, I never uh, have thought like, uh, you know, like um, I, I could um, like being traveling to the world, like uh, and bringing um, uh, a little bit of fluffiness to the to different uh, cities and countries. So I would say like uh, so far, um, I have been very happy with uh, what uh, we have uh, achieved. So what's next? So really, um, I think is to having more people understand about the products and knowing more about the brand. And also, uh, I think that happiness is a choice. So um, I think uh, we should all have have a good mood and uh, every day and choose to have a good mood every day and enjoy a little bit of sweetness. So I think my mission here is to spreading the happiness and fluffiness uh, to more people, more customers uh, in North America right now as a focus. Is there anything else you want to tell our audience about Fluffy Fluffy or yourself or if they want to get a franchise, what should they do? Any of those things? I think uh, right now, um, expanding this concept, um, I think a lot of places, a lot of people still haven't really tried it, an authentic uh, souffle pancake yet. So I think um, if you are one of, you know, like the uh, uh, kind of like early adopter or like uh, you want to be a pioneer of, um, you know, one of you know, the person who spread, you know, had a little bit of fluffiness, then I think uh, our concept is really a good fit because like uh, we don't need any like um, like a, a fancy cooking or, or you know, uh, playing with um, like um, difficult uh, cutting uh, or, 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 or meat in, in our menu. Um, it's mainly dealing with uh, eggs, cream, dairies, uh, sugar, and uh, very simple ingredients but uh, making it uh, sophisticated. So I think um, for uh, people who wants to start a cafe or restaurants and does not want um, too many uh, hands-on uh, chef work, I think uh, we will be a very good uh, options uh, for that. Great, well, thank you so much for joining me today. Texas Pete is taking its flavor on the road with convenient, easy to enjoy portion control packets. Whether it's a Texas Pete dip cup or sauce packet, your customers will be able to enjoy bold flavor for a better on-the-go dining experience, anywhere, anytime. Ask your broker for the number one portion control hot sauce or visit texaspetefoodservice.com for more information.